Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Friday, March 19th. I'm Nyla Boudou. Here's what we're covering today. The first public spat between President Biden and Vladimir Putin. And a modified March Madness gets underway in Indianapolis. But first, responding to the Atlanta shootings is today's one big thing. The country continues to mourn the eight people who were killed in this week's shootings at three separate spas in the Atlanta area. Six of the victims were Asian women. Not all have been identified, but here's what we know about the victims. Xiaojie Tan lived in Kennesaw, Georgia. The 49-year-old owned the Young's Asian Spa. She was a licensed massage therapist. Delaney Yan of Ackworth, Georgia was 33 years old. Delena was at one of the spas with her husband, She leaves behind her 14-year-old son and her eight-month-old daughter. Paul Andre Michaels was from Atlanta. The 54-year-old man was an Army vet who owned his own electrical business in the area. He was working as a handyman at one of the spas. And Daoyo Fung was 44 years old. Elsius Hernandez-Ortiz of Ackworth, Georgia, who's 30 years old, was injured but is in stable condition. Joining me now to talk more about the shootings in Atlanta and other news from this week is Axios' managing editor, Margaret Taleb. Good morning, Margaret. Good morning, Nyla. One thing that really struck me is something our reporter Shauna Chen said yesterday, that this is a wake-up cry for the country to understand what Asian Americans have been going through over the past year. A hundred percent, I think that's true. Last spring, we as a nation came together around the experience that so many Black Americans have in this country of being treated differently by the police, about that being something that could be deadly for many people. And it started a year of national reckoning around this issue of systemic racism. But the last year has also been a terrifying time for so many Asian Americans. And when you saw this horrific act of violence, long before we knew what had actually happened, And what happened does matter from a perspective of the police doing their work, but the fear that it instilled that was just beneath the surface, the fear that it exposed, is something that all Americans are now understanding much better, but that millions of Asian Americans have already been fighting and facing over the course of the last year. Do you think that's also true of media coverage? Because I'm seeing such an outcry, particularly in social media, about the way journalists are characterizing all of this. Look, there's a learning process going on throughout the nation, and that includes in the media. The way you talk about the victims of these killings, the assumptions that are made about places of work, the media's instinct to just report what the police say instead of really sort of vetting that and thinking through whether they should parrot those words or contextualize them. This has all been part of that process. And I think there is a learning process going on in the Biden White House right now also about the importance of not just sensitivity, but addressing these concerns and these issues immediately. And you did see this week a a real pivot to that in the hours after the tragic shootings, the White House officials reaching out to Asian American lawmakers and advocacy groups, the immediate lowering the flags, the immediate changing up of this trip to Georgia, which was supposed to be kind of a celebration of the COVID stimulus and it's very quickly turned into a different visit to show allegiance with and to gain understanding from members of the AAPI community. 
President Biden was asked this week if Russian President Vladimir Putin was a killer, and he said yes. Russia, in response, has recalled their ambassador. Putin responded yesterday that it takes one to know one. Where do we go from here? I think Putin wants a debate. <laughs> That's what he seems to be suggesting. Look, I think we have known uh for approximately forever, that if Joe Biden were elected president, he would take a different public stance and a different private stance than the Trump administration towards Russia and the Russian president. But we are now beginning to see what that looks like. This is Biden acting very publicly and Putin saying, okay, if that's going to be your messaging, I'm going to message right back at you. We're going to see much more overt kind of diplomatic antagonism. And this is the beginning of it. Axios Managing Editor of Politics, Margaret Taleb. Margaret, it's good to have you back. Thanks. It's great to be back. We'll be back in 15 seconds with a look inside the college sports bubble for March Madness. Welcome back to Axios Today. March Madness is back today after its pandemic hiatus. The 64 teams are set after last night's playing games. The men's tournament starts today in and around Indianapolis, and the women's tournament starts Sunday in San Antonio. Axios' Jeff Tracy is here to tell us about the bubbled basketball extravaganza, unlike anything college sports has ever seen. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Nyla. So there's already players that are testing positive for COVID. How is this going to work? You know, if they're testing positive, they're isolating. Players are getting tested every single day. And that way, it's similar to what we saw in the NBA bubble with just daily testing. But of course, it is going to be uh, very different where that one was just an entirely enclosed environment in Disney World. Nobody in, nobody out, no fans. This is in the middle of a city. And so similar to, I know you said different than the NBA bubble, but are, for example, all the teams going to stay in the same hotel with COVID protocols and restrictions on family and friends? Is it a bubble in that sense? It's a, a partial bubble in that sense. There's five hotels that are all around the convention center, which is sort of the hub of the bubble. Each team has its own floor in one of those five hotels, and all of them are accessible to the convention center via Skywalk. So they're really never supposed to be outside, essentially. They're either walking via the skywalks or taking buses to games. And what about fans? Are they allowing fans in to watch the game in person? They are. There's about a 25% capacity at four of the six venues and then a slightly more restrictive capacity at two other venues that are a little further outside the city. So for those of us who are not in Indy, what is this going to look like for people watching at home? You know, it's mostly going to look the same, but it will be a little bit different. We're getting a, a nice treat for the Sweet 16. Uh, in past years, there's basically two games sharing a primetime spot on consecutive nights. But this time, it's just going to be back to back to back to back on two consecutive days. So you're not going to have to do a second screen or decide which game to watch. You're going to get to watch everything. That's good. We need more viewing during the pandemic spread out over long periods. <laughs> Definitely. Jeff Tracy is a sports reporter for Axios. The first game between the 7th seed Florida Gators and the 10th seed Hokies of Virginia Tech tips at 12.15 Eastern time. I am cheering for the Gators. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Nyla. Before we go today, we wanted to give you a little preview of a special episode we're dropping tomorrow. It's part of our Hard Truth series that looks at systemic racism. Tomorrow, the sport of lacrosse. 
Maybe you know this game to be played by Ivy League schools or rich white kids, but the game's origins are so far from that perception. It was created by Native Americans almost a thousand years ago, and their traditions live on through one of its top players, Lyle Thompson. I was born with a stick in my hands. My father played the game, my grandfather played the game, my grandfather's grandfather played the game. Lyle joins me to explain how he's fighting to keep the spirit of lacrosse alive, all the way to the Olympics. I hope you'll join us tomorrow for that. Axios Today is brought to you by Axios and Pushkin Industries. We're produced by Justin Kaufman and Nuria Marquez-Martinez. Our mix engineer is Alex Sugiara. Tim Popkoff is our executive producer, and Sarah Kailani Gu is our executive editor. Special thanks to Axios co-founder Mike Allen. And Pushkin, our executive producers are Leetal Malad and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and have a great weekend.